Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to Backstage with Bill Walton. I'm Bill Walton. Uh, we've added a new segment uh, to the Bill Walton Show, uh, which we're calling Backstage, is where we can explore you know, the more personal side of life, the life that I think sometimes is the only one we ought to be concerned about when we're dealing with all the political madness in the world, which you know I, I cover often too much and too exhaustively. Anyway, today we're taking a break from that. We're visiting with one of my great friends, Haven Pell, who... Uh, is one of the world's leading figures, if not the leading figure in a sport that people don't know much about. I didn't until I got into it. Now I'm very interested. It's called, at different terms, it's called court tennis or uh, jeu de pomme, or it's also uh, in Wikipedia as real tennis. And it's the predecessor to uh, what we now play tennis, uh, which started as lawn tennis in the late 1870s. Anyway, Haven spent a lifetime working at this. He learned the, not working at it, but enjoying the sport of it. He learned from his father, Clary Pell, really at his at his, at his knees um, as a kid and has been playing it his whole life. He, Haven spent over six decades in finance um, successfully. He was a naval officer, and now his life is culminating as a storyteller. And he's written a terrific book that uh, is uh, highly recommended uh, around the world in, in 50 courts. And in it, he talks about his personal journey uh, to play all of the 50, actually, it's not exactly 50, but it's close to it, uh, courts around the world and uh, tells the history of the game and, and, and uh, really another world, a world away from one of us, many of us live. And so I wanted to get him and talk about it. And we decided at the outset, this conversation is going to go, we know not where. <laughs> so... So, Haven, thank you very much for inviting me to uh, join backstage. Um, uh, I'm uh, very glad to be here. Brought some toys with me and hope to be able to um, tell your audience a little bit um, uh, of some, about something that they may not know very much about because most people don't. Well, let's start with what it is, court okay. tennis. What is, how is it different from regular tennis, which I play a lot of? Um, in, I would love to just readjust that question and say, how is re regular tennis different from court tennis since court tennis got there first? Have at it. Um, uh, court tennis, uh, to give you a little history, uh, I think many of us have played children's games, and this is a children's game. There's no question about it. It was the kind of thing that uh, people would have invented before they had any real idea of what life was about. They just looked at what was interesting. A children's game in the Middle Ages. Children's game in the Middle Ages. It had about probably 300 years in which it was played in various cities, um, principally in Western Europe. Um, and it was simply played in the environment that there was. There were no dimensions. There were no specific rules. Um, and along the way came an Italian writer called Scaino, and Scaino uh, decided he was going to try to homogenize this game because people were thinking that it was good enough that they would go ahead and, and actually have a purpose-built court. Um, he toured around in various parts of Europe, and, uh, and 
he said, well, okay, this is pretty much the way it's done in most places, and he wrote a treatise, and then from there, most of the courts ended up being built in somewhat the same way. Um, that went on um, until and evolved and had successes and failures. Uh, uh, prosperity was good. People had, uh, uh, had spare time. Revolutions were generally bad, um, uh, and the game would get banned. Revolutions were bad for sport. But it were bad, bad for, for many that's for sure. things, but it's because bad it for was Portland. it was uh, <laughs> adopted by um, monarchy, clergy, so forth, sort of the upper end of society. Uh, although I would say that actually most of the courts that existed throughout history were related to bars and betting, um, and uh, so uh, though it has a sort of a uh, an aristocratic demeanor, uh, mean to it, um, uh, much of it was um, uh, the, much of it was really related to selling drinks and getting people to bet on two different players. And um, so that's how it went until 1873. We, we've 18- got a picture of that uh, in the French version. It was called Jeu de Palme. Yeah. And, it was. Uh, we can, uh, we can maybe, we'll get this up on the screen and you can see the early version of the court, and we'll show you a, uh, a later version of the court in a minute. But uh, yeah. this is this is so it was in a courtyard, <clears throat> medieval courtyard, and primitive net strung across it, across it, and you could play all the walls off yep. all the walls. Okay, that's start, true. Continue. And and you know, if you imagine it as a children's game, the high likelihood is that they would have had some sort of a sphere, um, uh, and because those were. And that is everywhere throughout the earth. The Aztecs played ball games, um, but you would have your weaponry would have been your hand, and um, so it began that way, and then began to evolve until it got to the racket that I assume you can see on the table. No, okay. we'll hold it up. All right. Hold it up. Yeah. So it evolved from the hand to a racket, and. The, they kept very much the same size um, as the palm of your hand. It's obviously much smaller than a, a regular tennis racket. Um, and so the, the, the weaponry... Go ahead. Let me, let me reach. Okay. Sorry. The weaponry evolved. Um, and, you know, somebody would say, hey, look, I can, I can use this and I'm going to be a little bit better. Um, and one of the things that I always wonder about is what happened, you know, Bill, if you and I were used to playing together uh, all the time, and what would happen when I showed up with my first pair of glasses that you didn't have, and suddenly I could see the ball better than you? Would that be, would that have been viewed as cheating? Much as we have all kinds of discussions today in tennis and golf and any, anything else that includes equipment about what equipment is fair. And we spend a great deal of time, uh, even today, uh, in discussion of what what equipment is fair to use. Uh, we don't want. And to have, you've been president of the tennis, uh, the court tennis association. I was president of the foundation that supports the game. I've yeah. been a member of the uh, board of the governing association um, for years. Um, and so these kinds of things come up and are discussed all the time. Well, one of the things that struck me about your book is it's not it's about the game. It's fascinating about the courts you've traveled, but it's also about camaraderie, sportsmanship, and what I'd call the sporting life. And yep. 
And we have a mutual acquaintance, a very, very good friend of yours, uh, Temple Grassy, who I guess you two traveled most of to all the courts together visiting uh, in England and in France primarily. Yes. Um, Temple and I got involved with this. Uh, uh, I, I always think that you, you decide where you live sometime in your 40s and you have children and you begin to say, well, I think, you know, here I am in Washington, D.C. I guess this is where I live. And there were a group of people um, who uh, were at more or less the same stage in their life in the uh, mid-80s. And we said, okay, well, we're all, you know, we have kids in school and we have houses and mortgages and so forth. And, you know, if this is where we live, what do we do to make it better? And, you know, for good or ill, a small group of us said Washington would be better if it had court tennis. And this, we thought, would be just fine and, you know, no, no difficulty there at all. It actually took about... Uh, 10 or 12 years to find a place and to pull it all together. But from the middle 80s to the late 90s, uh, we spent building a court. And Temple and I were very much involved with that. There were others, Fred Prince as well. There were many other, many other people uh, who were involved. And uh, so he and I became friends doing that, and then we um, got to open this first court that we built at a sports club in McLean, Virginia, and we, um, uh, we were pretty enthusiastic about what we'd done. Um, there hadn't been a court built in the United States since 1918, um, and um, so it was, was pretty remarkable. Uh, we then said, well, there are other people who do this, and they do it in interesting places, and we should go off and learn about their places and meet them and so forth. And so we set out to do that beginning in 1999, and we were progressing nicely. And that's the saga that you recount yeah. in the book, yeah. And there were, you know, there were, Temple was, <clears throat> Temple was a wonderful friend. I mean, you know, he has a you know, there's a, in a, he was known as the ambassador because uh, he was such a, uh, a zealot about promoting the sport and um, had such personality. He was also a fifth grade teacher at Landon School. And um, uh, he um, uh, got a lot of people to at least know about it. And um, so off we went and we started touring around. And the thing, the benefit of traveling the world, or at least Europe, or I guess it was France and England where, where most of the courts were. Right. Traveling with a fifth grade teacher, you were in a group, small group. He would always remind you to go to the bathroom before you got in the car. Yeah. And he was always <laughs> interested in what the full day was going to be like. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so he, he didn't probably have to treat me as much like a fifth grader as he had in his day job. Uh, but, uh, yes, we, we thought about that sort of thing uh, a, a lot. Uh, and one of the things, uh, one of the things that happened was um, there was a, a great rule of life with Temple Grassy, and that was that he did not drive on the left. And so he, uh, I was always the driver. He was always the. Navigator. In England, that would be that would be tough. That would be tough. So at the time that we were first doing this, this would be you know 2001, 1999, 2002 trips in that period. GPSs weren't what they are, and um, we had to use something called MapQuest, and uh, MapQuest meant that you got turn-by-turn -turn directions, but they were printed, and so you really designed had... to make you mad. 
you really had to know exactly what you were going to do in a given day. Right. That was a pretty good plan. And I was a pretty organized guy. And, you know, I could put these, you know, notebooks together and they would be day by day and where we're going and court by court. And all the MapQuest pages look exactly the same. It's turn left, turn right, do this and that. There was a flaw. Temple got carsick. And if you ever tried to read MapQuest while getting, you know, not feeling so good, um, you, uh, you know, every roundabout, which is one of England's great contributions to humanity, uh, <laughs> is turn left, pass some number of turnings, turn left again, and go on. Um, but if you have to close the book after each of the directions, then you end up whirling around the roundabout until you can get the book back open again to the right page. And uh, that, was, that was a challenge. There was one moment in Reading. I, I don't think, I, I think Reading is essentially a black hole that everyone who's <laughs> ever been there is still there. And uh, that, uh, you know, it, it's entirely possible that everything from 1999 onwards is just an out-of-body experience. I mean, Temple and I might still actually be in Reading. <laughs> and um, it, was, uh, it was very interesting. In any event, we ultimately had to replace the first court that we built. And we were in the process of building a second one. And, and you know, this is where it gets to be a little bit sad, but on the same sense, um, uh, a little bit like Moses. Uh, Temple never made it to the Promised Land. Uh, he died two years before we got um, uh, our uh, before we got our court built. Actually, one year before we got our court built, and so the book is dedicated to him um, because he was a fellow traveler and somebody that I had a great deal of fun with, and uh, a person who uh, uh, had suffered suffered the sin of enthusiasm. Um, which, in my view, is no the sin, sin of enthusiasm. Well, that's one of the that that, that just shines through. I mean, this is this. There are about six thousand people worldwide that play the game, and there's a camaraderie, and and sense of fellowship. And it's not just men; there are women now playing the game. Women, children, and so. But the when he died, there was a well, massively well attended funeral, and he you introduced this poem in in the book in the introduction, and I. Took, I looked at this. And I thought, "Why? Wow, this is this is absolutely one of my favorites." But I understand, and I've taken a crack at poetry. Yeah. But I think you're probably better at this than I am. Do you want to? You want to sure. tell us what this? Well, first of all, I, I think you have to imagine uh, that Sir Henry Newbold. Wait, before we we go, this is the Bill Walton show. I'm here with my great friend Haven Pell, who is the really the uh, imminent grease of all things racket tennis, court tennis, and. Uh, um, has written this wonderful book about the, the life and the, and the sport. And we're about to learn a little bit more about the, the culture of the, of the game. So um, I think, um, you know, I'm not sure that very many reading lists for children include Kipling. Um, uh, that's probably not politically very correct. And I would suggest that Kipling was probably a better known poet than Sir Henry Newbolt. But Sir Henry Newbolt did write a number of poems that would have been um, important on the, on the question of how to behave. Um, we, 
we have things that we do, we have laws that we have to deal with, and in between those two uh, is things that are and are not done. And Sir Henry, Henry Newbolt seemed to write about that place in our, in our lives. Things that you, what a well-brought-up person should do. And so this was a, uh, uh, this was a poem that he wrote that was very important to Temple. As I say, he was a fifth grade teacher because sports was very important to him. And what did we learn from being in sports? And so Temple would recite this <clears throat> um, uh, quite often, anytime he was asked, and he would sometimes adjust it. And I read <laughs> it at his funeral at the, um, at the uh, National Cathedral. There's a breathless hush in the close tonight, ten to, <clears throat> ten to make and the match to win, a bumping pitch and a blinding light, an hour to play and the last man in. And it's not for the sake of a ribboned coat or the selfish hope of a season's fame, but his captain's hand on his shoulder smote. And here what I did in the, at the cathedral was I got everybody, all 1,400 people, to do this with me. I'll do it with you. Play up, play up, play play up and, and play, play the game. game. The sand of the desert is sodden red, red with the wreck of a square that broke. The gatlings jammed and the colonel dead and the regiment blind with dust and smoke. The river of death has brimmed his banks, and England's far and honor a name. But the voice of the schoolboy rallies the ranks. Play, play up, play up, play, up, play the game. game. So what we know from that, from those two, is that what the person learned on the cricket field, he then takes into the army, which would have been a very logical progression for um, uh, a young, clearly a boy, uh, in that period of time. And so then <clears throat> he has to return to the school. This is the word that year by year, while in her place, the school is set. Every one of her sons must hear, and none that hears it dare forget. This they with a joyful mind, bear through life like a torch in flame, and falling fling to the host behind. Play, play up, play up, and, and play, play the, the game. game. So it's, it's in, in a sense, it's, a, it's an education of how to be. Sure. Um, and so that's, that's what, what you learn sports about... Was all of, it was more about how to be than, the, than winning what the you game. Yeah, what you learn on a playing field is 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 about fairness and about not taking advantage and uh you know it's interesting that he goes from the boy on the field to the battle and then back well he to wrote the this in 1898 and yeah. i i thought it was kipling yeah. for a long well, time until so. i realized that it, it was not and but this poem was used and and there's an irony here uh paul fussell wrote a book the birth of irony about world war one and about how the young men uh there was a young lieutenant who led his soldiers into battle over the trench, mm -hmm. over the edge of the trench in World War I, and they were reciting this poem. And uh, 
the sad thing about that, of course, was that the modern warfare was, was you know, just about butchering people. It wasn't so much about honor as it was this mechanized, uh, mechanized slaughter. Uh, yeah, yeah. And anyway, I digress. Let's let's stay the, with the sporting life. Well, I, the, I, the you know, I think that the the interesting thing. I promised is, you we'd have one long digression here. We can. I think the interesting thing is, uh, you know, this this game. Uh, the the people ask every now and again. Somebody says, "Well, does anybody cheat in this game?" And uh, uh, there is actually a chapter in the book about somebody who did. Um, and but it's it deserved a chapter simply because it doesn't happen very often. And it's a little bit like golf. If you have if you have cheating in golf, you have no game at all um, because there's no way to there's no way to um, police it. And if people are cheating, then there's there's no activity at all. So you really have to learn, um, you know, what your you know what kind of a reputation you want to have. Um, and uh, uh, we have the same kind of problem. The reason that we don't have cheating in court tennis is because it's too easy. It'd be too easy to cheat. You could cheat all the time, and um, uh, we just can't do that. And one of the things that I think that I find is when we have a a child who's beginning. And they begin to get the idea that they are being depended upon by their uh, opponent to call the ball fairly, um, then, and they are depending on their opponent. That is something that we preserve uh, because in a small world, in a small universe, your reputation is forever. And uh, you know, you're going to grow up. If you play in an under 12 tournament, you're going to grow up and you're going to play with that guy for the rest of your life. And um, uh, so, uh, cheating is, is not something that you can do. And hopefully that transitions into the rest of the, the person's life. And they say, this is how I'm going to behave. And this is, um, well, that's why I love this book so much because it's about honor mm -hmm. and sportsmanship and what that means and, and, and playing the game and playing the game fairly. And that's something I don't think is taught nearly enough now. Uh, let's visualize a bit what this is about. We've got a picture here of the Jesmond uh, Dende. Jesmond Dean. Jesmond Dean in Newcastle, England. And uh, it's uh, it's interesting. I've showed you this. You've played all 50, what, three courts in the well, there, world? There are, uh, and I showed you this photo, hive. and you, you, you recognized oh, it instantly. Yeah. Uh, there's something in the high 40s of courts. But look, if you're going to steal Jules Verne's title, you're not going to call it around the world in 47 courts. I mean, <laughs> around the world in 80 you, days, you around, the the, <laughs> around the world in 80 days has done really well. It's had a movie. It's had all sorts of things. And why would you change something that worked? Um, we actually, the, in, in setting the title for this, we tried to decide whether it should be 50 spelled out or 50 numbers. And we decided that it should be 50 spelled out because that's what 50 shades of gray is. <laughs> hey. Got to be a reason for everything. And um, uh, so... Good uh, artists steal, great artists... Uh, great, good, good artists borrow, great artists steal. Oh, absolute theft. Uh, <laughs> absolute theft. Pinched it right away. There actually, there, while there are 46 or 7 courts in the, in the world, I've played in 54 of them. Um, because some of them have because gone. Because who's counting? They've gone, they've gone the way gone, of the... Yeah, uh, and one of them was on a movie set in Noank, Connecticut. Well, these courts have got an amazing history. If we can, we, I hope we stay with this picture a bit, because the, one of the courts in Paris was 
the place where they what did they they call it the court oath where they oh the 1789 they yeah. we'll tell that story okay um uh, uh minor correction it was in versailles um but uh well, that's suburb, not going to kill anyone uh so it was in versailles and we're at june 20 1789 um uh, today is june 22nd so we're just past the anniversary <laughs> Um, June 20, 1789, the Estates General have been meeting in various places in the palace in Versailles uh, to create a new constitution for France. Um, the palace was, of course, owned by the king, and the king didn't think things were going well for him. So he locked up the palace. He was right. <laughs> he was right. Um, he was and so he locks up the palace, and the people, there's 570-some delegates have no place to meet. Uh, so they scurry around in Versailles and they find a tennis court and they all go into the tennis court um, uh, and they vow to stick together until, um, uh, until they have come up with a constitution. And uh, they do this. The picture, the, the, you know, the drawing painting by Jacques-Louis David of the Sermon de Jeu de Pomme, the tennis court oath, uh, it's, there's no question it's in a tennis court. I mean, he wouldn't call it that for no reason. Well, the one of the stories, I'm going to let you amplify it, but there's only one door yeah. to a tennis court. And so once you're in, you're in. Yeah. But as in. people went in, they headed different directions. Yeah. So think about just a, a little bit of human nature. Um, let's uh, imagine that you and I, for whatever reason, are in the same group in France in 1789. Maybe we're merchants, maybe we're clergymen, maybe we're farmers, maybe we're whatever. But we know that we have the same interests. And so the absolutely normal human response to that is, shouldn't we go stand together? We'll go stand together, and then we'll look across the way and be sure that nobody is trying to, you know, Eucharist in some way, um, and so that we're getting our share. Um, so what happened was that some people go through this door, which is at the side of the court, um, and there's a net right in front of it, and some people go to the left, and some people go to the right. And that is the origin of the concepts of left and right in politics everywhere in the world today. And it all happened in a court tennis court. And uh, uh, it's Interesting because the the generally more progressive or radical party is always called the left, and the generally more conservative or you know, more conservative party is always called the right. That's not true of the colors. In the United States, um, uh, red is for Republicans and blue is for Democrats, whereas it's exactly the opposite in England. The more liberal party is red and the more conservative party is blue. But the concepts of left and right are everywhere. For that, we have to have to have to have to thank the single door on the court tennis court. There you do. Okay, we've done enough politics. Okay, unless yes, you, unless you have. <laughs> unless you, we could we could certainly get into it. So how's how's the game played? I mean, we'll just this is uh, the Bill Walton show, and I'm here with Haven Pell, and we're talking about court tennis. Uh, some some Wikipedia calls it real tennis. Uh, I think I'm beginning to see why they call it real tennis. It's a difficult game. We have a graphic here, a court schematic, which explains what's happening in the room that we just looked at. 
explain, explain what this is. Well, the first thing to notice about the court, and nobody does, I ask it as a rhetorical question. You can imagine that I do a lot of explaining what this is to a lot of different people. And so uh, I will have them looking at a court and be beginning to explain the history in much the same way as this conversation. And I will say, what's the first thing that you notice? Well, I, it's O for all of them. Nobody's ever gotten it right. And the answer is the two ends of the court are different. And if the two ends of the court are not symmetrical, one looks one way and one looks a different way, then there's a high likelihood that one end is better than the other. <laughs> and it's true. Um, there is one end that is better than the other, and all the serving takes place from there. And so everything about the game, and it is undeniably complicated. The one thing that people, if they have heard the smallest thing about court tennis, they will say, it has a very complicated scoring system. Yes, it does. And everything about the scoring system is designed to help you to have some method of sharing the better end where the serving takes place. And the advantage is probably if you and I are both equally skilled, the person at the better end is probably going to win about 55% of the points, which given the way tennis is scored, and by the way, uh, mm -hmm. real tennis was an interim name for us. We were tennis for 800 years. Then along comes this other game that was invented in 1873. Well, well, and it was invented by a guy, and I've read this maybe in your book or maybe separately, who was a, who was a, a upwardly mobile, desiring. Uh, uh, he was a ne'er do well, right? Well, no, I, Walter Clopton Wingfield. I, I, I am. Probably not predisposed to be a huge fan of Walter. Well, but Clopton he wanted women. to meet a game. He wanted a game where he could meet women because I, he wanted to marry I, a rich, rich I woman. I have to so, confess, there's a little bit of fiction in the book, oh, it's, and it's that such is a good, okay. Well. that that came a little bit from his motivation came from my head. The reality of Walter Clopton Wingfield is is absolutely true. He invented a game in December 1873. He patented it. Uh, it looked like a backyard croquet set. That's what you would get. Um, and, you know, it had four rackets and a bunch of balls and, you know, so forth. And it all was absolutely derivative of court tennis. And he called it spheristike, which is the Greek word for ball game. And uh, uh, it, was, it was very interesting. It couldn't have been invented any sooner than that because it required two very important things. One was vulcanized rubber so that you could have a tennis ball. And that didn't exist until the 1800s. And the second thing was steam power, um, because you couldn't have a roller uh, pulled by He's an animal. on grass. Yeah, because it was just like Wimbledon, Wimbledon is now. Yeah, was played on grass. Yeah. And so you had to have a level surface that wasn't pulled by oxen who would make hoof marks. In oxen it. would be would certainly change the bounce. It would definitely change the bounce. Yeah. So those two things were prerequisites. But changing the game from an indoor game of three dimensions to an outdoor game of two dimensions was, was very, very smart. I mean, you have to give him a great deal of credit. From 1874, when he patented Spheristike, it evolved very quickly into pretty much what you see as tennis today. And there existed by 1880 national championships in both England and the United States. And women took up this game. Women took right up the away. game. Yes. And, and in large numbers. 
uh, and in large numbers. I think that uh, in part, uh, I always think that he was pretty clever in moving it outdoors because people like to play games outdoors, um, and that attracted much more audience. Good for him. Um, but yes, I invented the part in which he um, he was he was a colonel. We know that, and we have pictures of him, and he's in a beautiful red jacket and so forth, and has looking, a splendid looking sash. splendid. Yeah, and uh, so I figured if he was a military person, he was a second son, and if he was a second son, he wasn't going to inherit anything, and if he wasn't going to inherit anything, he was looking for a rich woman. <laughs> and uh, so I felt that that was his motivation. Like there is no support for that one. This is the Haven Pell definitive history. Yes. Okay. That is, that is <laughs> I, I, one of the things, if, if you are going to read this book and thinking that you're getting the work of a scholar, let me disabuse you of that notion right no, away. But, this but is even a story. I don't, we don't, you know, <laughs> scholars, be, you know, we're, we're interested in raconteurs. We're interested in people who've lived the life and, that certainly would be you. Uh, but the point I think you made about two-dimensional, if it's not obvious, this game, the, in, the real tennis is played uh, using all the walls. The walls are in play. And it's, it's actually great fun because the walls are, that are in play are 18 feet high on the side and 24 feet and high. And it's a massive court. It's bigger than it's a big, regular it's, tennis court. It's, 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 it's about fence-to-fence -fence size. Yeah. It's huge. It's, uh, it is much bigger. Uh, than a regular tennis court. Uh, it, it is the way to envision it is to think about it as, as a tennis court from fence to fence instead of line to line. And uh, it's, it's wonderful fun. You bring a small child in there and, and they maybe have played a little tennis and they've experienced the frustration of hitting a ball that's just out. And you say, you ask them about that. How do you feel when you hit the ball that's one inch out? And the child's his head goes down and he looks sad and so forth. I said, would you like to try to hit a ball out in this game? And he says, okay. And I say, see that way up there? See if you can hit it. <laughs> Nobody can. And the kid just lights up. And he said, I can hit it as hard as I want. I can hit it anywhere I want. <laughs> and, and there are windows and there are sloping roofs and there's abutments and things that, uh, that are, there's, there's one part of the court at one end in which if you hit it, it sends the ball off at a 90-degree angle. Um, and What's that called? It's called a tambour. The tambour, now, okay. Now, let me tell you one of the great moments to have with your grandson. He's on the court for the first time, likes to play tennis, loves all this stuff, and you've hit some balls to him, and he's hitting a few of them back. And you say, let me show you this. And you have him to return this ball and you hit it up the side of the wall, and suddenly it goes off at a 90-degree angle. Then, I mean, that's when you really need a good photographer. You want the expression on the <laughs> It is. That's when they're hooked. Well, the, uh, the, the thing that about... I love the colorful part of the sport. I'm looking around for a piece of paper. I found out that there... I, I found out there were 14 serves, but you corrected me. There are actually how many serves? I think they're 54. So when you put uh, the ball in play, that's the serve. Yeah. And and tennis, the name in French means take heed. Yes, tenez. Tenez, take heed. It was, it was shameful in the early years to serve. And so one of the reasons that you might be, you might be curious, why is it called a serve? Because the kings thought it was so shameful 
to put the ball in play, that they had a servant or a servant to do so for them. And so there would be an extra person on the court who would hit the ball in the way that you have to hit it um, so that it is a proper serve, and then he would dash off the court and everybody else would continue playing. But he was the servant, and what he did was the, the selve or the serve. And so the servant would say, take heed. And he would say, tenez, tenez. Before, before you begin. And um, uh, so tenez became tennis. I think we're fairly clear on that. Um, the rest well, of the scoring system, nobody well, is clear well, on well, that. Well, in the saying. usurper sport that I play, you know, the one that we see on TV, the serve is probably the weakest part of my game. So I have now got a new idea. I'm going to get a servant to help me to hit the serve. I think you should. Get out of the way. I think you should. I think adapting games is very important. And well, you've played over 50. I mean, you're a sportsman. I mean, you've not only played this game, but you ski, cross-country skiing, you're a golfer, you're tennis. Uh, um, you know, what we've joked about is real tennis, but you've played regular tennis. You've, you've, played, you've played over 50 sports. I have. Actually, I, for a time, I had a website with another friend, and we were writing about sports and values. And uh, Sports and Values. Values, yeah. And it, it, essentially, the first, the first two chapters, uh, stanzas of the Newbold poem, we were r writing about what do you learn from sports. Most of us don't become pro athletes. Most of us learn character from sports. And so as part of the exercise, we, and it took us a couple of months to do it, we each asked each other, how many sports have you played in your life? And I came to over 100. And now that counts hall hockey at boarding school. Um, it well, counts. that counts. That's one yeah, of the, that's it was a top. game. Yeah, I mean, sure. Was, you know, the whole question of what is a game um, is, is a very interesting one. And, uh, uh, yeah, you count water skiing and you count, um, you know, we, we, had to, we had to decide a little bit what was a sport. Is poker a sport? I didn't think so. No, um, poker is uh, not a sport. Poker is not a sport. Is chess a sport? I think we sort of evolved towards the idea that it had to be an active physical game. Right. But you could have defined it any other way. It's just as good. Well, I guess if you want to say a sport is where you play rules and you, your, your job is to that you, you call yourself out if you break a rule. Yep. And that's one of the issues. I, I don't watch professional sports. I guess I watch some golf and occasionally tennis and occasionally golf. You know, the modern professional game and the college game in most, in most sports has become so win at all costs, so Vince Lombardi, um, that uh, was the guy in the Oakland Raiders, win, baby, win, or just win yeah. or something. Yeah. I think that's wrong. And I think it teaches all the wrong lessons. And we've got this, uh, this culture now where you do anything to win, and I think you forget, and I'm pontificating here, what really matters. What really matters to most people. Uh, and I think that that's, uh, you know, there are some people, um, uh, there are some people who are going to be uh, extraordinarily highly valued for their skill. And, you know, they can make, it used to be that it was pretty good if they could make hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now they make millions of dollars or they become team owners and they make billions of dollars. And, uh, you know, you look at uh, the... Uh, merger of the PGA and Live Golf, um, and you see that it's there's it's undeniably very big business. Television has helped to do that. Now we see it happening in college, and uh, I 
I, I think as I move into the Substack world where you are, one of the things that I am going to continue writing about is um, uh, what are we doing wrong with sports? And there's, there's a lot. And one of the conversations that I have very frequently is with parents who have uh, kids who are involved in travel sports. And that's an area that needs some looking after. But when you dangle the carrot of what is now probably a $300,000 college tuition over four years, and somebody's going to give that to you, people are going to chase it. And they're going to do a lot to chase it. And it's, it's done a great deal to improve the skill levels of people, but at a quite a considerable cost. Well, I'd like to contribute to that when you get that going, because I'm thinking this through. You know, I gave my very, ide very idealistic speech just now about how it's all about character. And I was doing some research on the, the beginning of the modern Olympics. It was a Frenchman that started yep. it. Pierre de Coubertin. And the, 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 the hearkening back to the ancient Greeks and did a little work on the Greeks and their sports. Turns out in the Greek games, there was no second place. It was first place. Right. And they would do anything to win. Mm -hmm. And it was really, it was winner take all. And so the notion of, of the sporting life and the, and the value system really came in in, in Victoria and England and, and, and France during that area. And it was a very different, uh, different code than the, even the original Greeks in sport. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and I think it's very interesting about uh, Pierre de Coubertin. He, in the 1890s, there must have been some sort of, uh, you know, desire to be involved in sports because court tennis was sort of having an, uh, a, a renaissance at that period of time and the Olympics were getting created. So people must have been thinking a lot about it. Um, and uh, Pierre de Coubertin didn't care a whit about amateurism, but he knew that he had to care about it if he was going to get England to be involved. And so if England was very important to the Olympics and they cared a great deal about amateurism, and so he was going to have to make the Olympics be amateur. And, you know, we've, uh, uh, we've seen all kinds of movies on both sides of that. Uh, Chariots of Fire is one of them. Um, but there was a wonderful series about the creation of the uh, uh, British Football Association or their Soccer Association and how it was being held by the, you know, the sort of upper classes in England, and they didn't want the, the working class to play. It was not that they didn't want professionals in their sport. They didn't want people who worked at all to be playing in it. And there was a, there was a lovely Netflix series that talked about this one person who democratized it and uh, to the benefit of everyone. But it is, it is, uh, uh, it is, it is, it continues to evolve. That's why it's going to be an interesting topic to write about. Well, and you've democratized modern court tennis. I mean, you've added, a, you've really opened it up there to a lot many, of people who wouldn't or wouldn't there, used to have there played. There are many, uh, you know, if you go back to what it looked like when I started playing in the 1950s, which is what now 60 plus years ago, um, to what it looks like today. Um, we found, you know, and particularly here, which we did, Temple and I did quite consciously, we felt that it was going to be something that was going to do best if it was the most wide open to anybody who was curious enough to want to play. And that it shouldn't be uh, dependent on the color of your old school tie. And, uh, and so we didn't do that. 
And it shows, um, you know, uh, Washington, uh, the players that we have here in Washington have come from everywhere. And it's not just a few people who had access to a few fancy clubs and um, so forth. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's... Well, we talked about the number of serves. Uh, I love the names of the serves in this game. There's the railroad, yeah, the bobble, the demi PK, the underarm twist, the giraffe. The giraffe. That's a very high serve, not surprisingly. And then there's the boomerang. The boomerang is another very high serve. By the way, I can't do either of them. Well, the, I, I understand wish I could. the bo the boomerang. It says when served well, it's impossible to return. And this gets to our earlier point. So there's a gentleman's agreement that the service not used at high level play. Yes. Yeah. There are some things that that basically that wreck the game. And uh, the the that particular serve, the the end result of it is that you make it scoot along the back wall about one inch away from the back wall. Having played squash, you can't okay. dig that and, out. And, yeah. and the the problem with that is it's boring. Um, you know, if, <laughs> yeah. if, if you and I are playing and I am able to do that and you are scampering around whacking the back wall with your racket and never hitting it over the net, it's not a great hour. <laughs> it's not a great hour for us. It's certainly not a great spectacle. And so there are some things, some places where the weaponry is simply so advantageous that you have to say, well, look, we're ruining the game. We've got to stop. We can't do this. And uh, there's another game. Uh, there was, what was the other one that you like? The African I hunting love, dog? My favorite is the African hunting dog. The African hunting dog is a dreadful serve. Um, <laughs> and it is a serve that for most people, is uh, an American twist. Uh, it's a serve that people use as a second serve. They kind of hit it like this. Second serve in tennis? Yeah. Or, yeah. And, and given the nature of what happens uh, in court tennis, it hits the back wall and it scoots way off to one side. And it basically, if you're a right-hander, it kind of hits you in the stomach. <laughs> and so it's a crummy serve because any reasonable player will just stand much further back and walk right into it and smack it. Uh, it happens to be on the court that we just built in Washington, still a very good serve because the court in Washington that we finished in. Yeah, that's no, at the Westwood Country Club? Yeah. And is that the, open to the public? Uh, it is. A, we can make it available. We're going to make it. Yeah. Okay. Um, the, uh, <laughs> that court is the surface of the walls is still a little bit rougher than it will be when it so-called plays in. It, a court seasons over some period of time, and it achieves what its ultimate character will be, but not for the first couple of years. Mm. You have to play on it a bunch. So for the moment, you still got a great benefit from the African That's hunting it. dog. And we have a lot of people, unfortunately, who are learning this serve. And one of the things that I do to try to help them is to say, okay, this serve is really working for you. I understand that. That's great. Keep doing it. It'll beat people at a fairly unsophisticated level. When do you stop doing the serve? Well, of course, they've never thought of that. And I teach them that when you see your opponent back up before you serve it, so that every time it's going to happen, they always know where it's going to be, then it's time to try something different because he's on to you. Um, and uh, 
but yes. Well, that's Rafa Nadal's return of serve. Yeah. Uh, we've been staring at these five lovely balls uh, for the whole time. Tell me about what those okay. are. Those, those don't look like the tennis balls. No, I'm used they to. don't. And and people <laughs> often ask, what is the process of um, building of of making a tennis ball? Now it's a mass production in regular tennis. You have some rubber, and they put some felt on it, and they can do they can make thousands of those, and they have machines that do it. Well, that's not what we do. What we do is we begin. Uh, inside of this is probably a little bit of uh, saran wrap, and the saran wrap is holding together some uh, a little bit of beat-up wine cork. And so you take, uh, all of us contribute our wine corks to the clubs. You then put those in a Cuisinart, and you turn them into cork chunks, and then you wrap them in saran wrap. Now you're kidding me. I am not kidding you. I am not kidding you. That is what happens. This is, and, this is, these are literally wine corks yeah, in a Cuisinart. Yeah. And at Wellington College, uh, the, one of the pictures in the book is a basket that they have that says that in which the pros say, thank you for your wine corks. And it's to remind people. They put it right in the lobby so that people will bring their wine corks to the club and they can be chopped up in a Cuisinart, wrapped in saran wrap, and then they are wrapped in this sort of cotton tape, and it makes a ball that is really is quite round. This then gets put into a sort of a cup like this with the, with the top sticking out, and they get whacked with a hammer. You move it around to try to make it round, okay? Because it, it isn't perfectly round. So that's step one. Steps one and two are the wine corks, the saran wrap, and the cotton tape. Then you need to really make it tight so you get a, a batch of thread uh, and you wind it around the ball and tighten it up. And you put, you, you basically, you hold the ball in your hand, you wind the, uh, the, the, this uh, string around a stick and you pull it. And it is very tight. And you see the professionals at every court spend a great deal of time making balls. So part of the job of the professional at the, at the courts is to make balls. Is to make balls. So that's about step, step three. Step three, okay. Here's step four in which you take felt, ball, what we call ball cloth, and presently in short supply, so it's a problem that we have to deal with, and you create something that looks like this, and then you trim it with some scissors, and you sew it, and you end up with this. And you, and sew, it, and you, you sew it by hand? You sew it by hand. And there's a specific number of stitches. that goes, I think it's 108 stitches. I can't remember what it is. But there's a specific number of stitches that makes a perfect ball. Now, we're, we're about to host the World Championship at Westwood in September. You know, it's hard to see this going mass market. No. <laughs> no. Um, we're about to could host... I, could I see the, the, the completed ball there? Yeah. That's... The, so it's um, it's 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 a little it's a, a little heavier than a regular tennis ball. Yep, and, and has and has no give because of the cork. Yeah, and it, what kind of noise does it make when it comes off the the racket? Is it just a if regular? you do it really well, uh, it makes a kind of a swish noise because you've put a lot of spin on it, and that's what you're trying to do. And this the racket is strong with nylon now. 
It used it's, to be gut. Uh, it was at one time gut. Now it's all kinds of miracle things. Miracle things, but and, it seems to me that you should talk to the people who invented pickleball because their ball is horrendous. Yes. Well, I digress. We'll come back yeah. to pickleball in a minute. But okay, we'll anyway, come so back continue to with our sport here anyway, that we so, love. So, needless to say, if you have this sort of uh, real craft of being able to do this, to make balls, there are some people who do it better than others. <laughs> and so when we get to the world championship, all the balls will be supplied by one person who has made them. And he is the person who is viewed to make the best ones in the whole world. And, go ahead. And so the, the set of balls will be made, it will be shipped, it will be delivered, and then after the world championship, the balls will be returned where they will be recovered and, you know, maybe remade, but they will have, let, they will have been in use for three days. And the way you start a game is you start with a basket of balls, and there's typically 60 balls in the basket, roughly. 72, yeah. 72. And so you... you no and, real reason it has to be that. I mean, it could be anywhere from and then you've got 60 a, to 100. You've got, there's a, the, the basket is receded in the floor, and you kick the balls towards the basket, or you use your racket. They, so the balls reaccumulate in that basket, so you don't have to go all over the court chasing them. Right, and then you bring them back to where the server is going to want them. I've got to, I've got put, to play this game. You and you put them in a trough, um, yeah. uh, and the server picks them up and and serves them. Well, in tennis, you see in high level tennis, you see the, the sometimes they'll they'll be handed a couple of balls and they'll look at it very carefully to see which one they want to use. Usually, there's not much difference. In this case, though. It seems like balls could be very different one from another. They so you're in can. a championship mode. You're going to be staring at uh, the seams and what's loose and what isn't. Yeah, uh, and some people for a particular serve might want to hit, have what they view to be um, uh, the smallest, tightest one or the loosest, baddest one. Uh, it depends on the serve that they want to Depends hit. on whether they want to, what are the names of our serves? Whether and, they want a caterpillar serve or... A, a caterpillar, yeah. yeah. Uh, or, what, uh, <laughs> or what they think that their opponent is going to do back to them. He's going to return the ball. And so, uh, you know, you can choose a ball that you think is going to give you some advantage. Now, you and I are going to play. Yes, we are. How good are you? Uh, well... Uh, I think of Ted Williams. Somebody asked Ted Williams, what would you hit if you played today? And he said, I think I might hit 248. At what age was he answering the and question? And he said, but I'm 72 years old. There you go. Okay. And, uh, so uh, so I, when you're, at, in, when you're in your prime, I bet I'm you... A, I'm a pretty average player. Okay. I'm a pretty average but player. But at one point, was, you were one of the top No, ones. I wasn't. I yeah. wasn't. I was... Uh, enthusiasm was more my strength than than skill. There are lots and lots of people better than me and always have been. And, you know, uh, alas, uh, the process of aging is to get worse slower. Um, and and uh, that's... Oh, I'm there with that. What I'm trying to do is get worse slower. And uh, Okay, admirable goal. Now, one last point on the equipment. Maybe not my last point because I'm, I'm eager to play. This is not the typical oval tennis racket. This is... This is tilted one way and you explain I, I assume this is so you can dig balls out of the corner yeah and it also matches the uh your hand 
uh, it, it matches. Well, it matches if, the palm if you, part. Yeah, if you yeah if you hold it up uh, and hold your palm next to it, um, basically, very few people are going to hit a ball like this. They're going to cock their wrist up like this because it gives you more strength. Is it all forehand or is there a backhand? Oh, there's a backhand. Okay. Yeah, backhands, volleys, forehands, serves, all of it. Let's go play. Let's go play. <laughs> so what? What? Uh, what? I've, this I've tipped just the very top of the iceberg on this one in terms of all the things that we can get into. The book, by the way, just to remind, is around the world, around the world in 50 courts, uh, more or less, yeah, more uh, by Haven Pell. Uh, what if else? I can just share a word, if somebody you know, is interested in buying one, that is not the easiest process in the world. The publisher is Ronaldson Publications, and they have a website, and you can buy it on that website. But I get lots of emails from people who say, I can't find this on Amazon. Yeah, True. I could. I, I look for it. Yeah, you can't find it. It's not on Amazon. It's not in bookstores. Uh, it was published by a proper publisher in England, and uh, they sell it off of, off of their website. Um, or, you know, you can probably get in touch with me, and I'll figure out how to get you a copy. Let's let's close. We got to end up politically a little bit. Let's talk about the decline of civilization. We have we have court tennis, which arguably must be one of the hardest racket sports on the planet. You're nodding in agreement for anybody yeah, yeah, listening and not watching. Um, everybody's um, going to pick their sport. You're as the still hardest. you're still making your 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 rackets out of wood, whereas yep. almost all the modern tennis rackets and squash rackets are composite graphic. Graphite, that's that sort of thing, so it's heavier. Do you want to know the reason for that? Sure. Sure. Well, you're in a room. There are four walls. The ball, when you hit it, will go 120 or 130 miles an hour. If wow. we end up with nuclear technology for rackets, as they have in golf and as they have in regular tennis, we could be in a situation where we're just going to start hurting people. And there is, a, there is a limit to what human beings can do. And if you're in an enclosed surface, you know, an enclosed space, and somebody's hitting a ball that is going 135 miles an hour, you might not get out of the way of it. And so we try to limit the, the, uh, the efficacy of the weaponry by keeping, keeping the size small, keeping the materials so that it doesn't it doesn't get like drivers in golf, where they're hitting the ball 400 yards. Yeah, which, which was ruined the game, and in, in the, my humble opinion. But in terms of decline, the lawn tennis was easier than court tennis, and now we've come upon that that I think worst of all racket sports, pickleball. Mm -hmm. Do you share my view? Well, I think uh, here's. Unsurprisingly, I've spent a rather a lot of time thinking about what makes a sport successful, because it would be lovely to make this sport even more successful than it is. It's going to be it's going to be too hard. It's, well, that's that is a problem. Anyway, um, uh, the uh, the what makes a sport successful is that it's easy to start and interesting to continue. Okay, and obviously, that implies that people can do it. Hence pickleball. And the the thing that I am I will watch with great interest is pickleball is easy to start will it prove to be interesting to continue 
or are we in sort of a peak pickleball bubble? And will people sort of say, well, okay, I've played this for a while and uh, so forth, and it doesn't change much, and so I'm not going to bother with it anymore. I don't know. I haven't the slightest idea what's going to happen. Well, my theory is that it probably will fade because of just that. It's too simple in a way, and it's less interesting. One of the things that makes this your sport we've been talking about is it's so endlessly interesting. Well, I mean, I'm going to have to stay up our, all night just memorizing the names of the serves. It's hellishly difficult to start. Yeah. And so you lose people right away. But if they stay, they stay forever. Uh, if they stay, they become... It's, the, the marketing program for court tennis is pretty simple. It's like selling drugs. Um, you give people a few free hits, and you get them addicted, and you watch the, the idea get injected into their veins, and then they're hooked. And it's, it's probably just like selling drugs. Let's end on that. Haven <laughs> Pell. This is extraordinary. I've, uh, this is so interesting, and I do recommend uh, you take a, everybody to take a look at this book, even though just like the game, it's just as difficult to find as it is to play, uh, but it's well worth the, it's well worth the search. Uh, and uh, as always, uh, thanks for joining on the Bill Walton Show, and hope you found this uh, adventure into backstage with Bill Walton equally interesting as some of our more political shows. I think it's more interesting in a way because uh, the, the, the political world is wearing us out. And I think in this world of sports, there's a chance to really uh, live a human life and a, and a very uh, exciting, uh, civilized life. So, Haven, thank, thank you. you for having me here, Bill. Yeah. I very much enjoyed it. And uh, uh, thank you to your team as well who have uh, filmed this and will presumably edit out all the stupid things that I said. Well, they're not going to have to do that. Anyway, thanks for joining. As always, you can find us on all the major podcast platforms and Spotify and um, YouTube, Rumble, uh, Substack. We're on CPAC now on Monday nights, uh, maybe adding another night in not too distant future. Send us your comments on Substack about shows you'd like. Uh, and also send us your thoughts about the Substack segments because I personally would like to do a lot more and I'd hope you'd like to... Uh, uh, see those and, and hear those as well. So anyway, thanks for joining. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.